Let's read Psalm 86 together. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things, for you alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. And so David offers his prayer up to God. Most of us would probably be a little bit unsettled and a little bit nervous to have been John Adams, who would become, in time, the second president of the United States, to have been him on June 1st, 1785. He was not president yet at this point. George Washington was president. But there are um, there's a couple of reasons that most likely most of us would be a little bit unsettled to have been him on this particular date. For one thing, on this date, he is making an appearance. He has an audience with a king. He is going to go into this king's bedchamber, which is not where he slept. They called it a bedchamber. I don't know why, but he's going into this king's bedchamber where he receives people, has an audience with people and hears them and corresponds with them and so on. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal to have an audience with a king. Such was the gravity of the moment uh, that was symbolized with the decorum that was required for this event. John Adams would come to the doorway of this room and he would bow before the king. At the halfway point to the, the throne, he would bow a second time. And then when he finally stood before the presence, quote, unquote, he would bow a third time. Then the king would permit him to speak. He would just say a short word. The king would respond to him. And then John Adams would leave. But the way that he left would be the same way that he came in. He would retreat backward, 
Well, first you bow, retreat backward, come to the halfway point, bow again, and then continue to the entryway and bow a third time, and then he would leave, but he would never be allowed to turn his back on the king. It's a big deal to have an audience with the king as suggested by all of these specific, very formal requirements. I think most of us would be a little bit nervous, probably to say the least, to have an audience with the king. But there was another thing as well that would probably unsettle you. You see, it was only a few years before that the American War for Independence had finished. And the king that John Adams was appearing before was King George III of England. Only a few years before, this particular king would have very much liked to see John Adams at the end of a hangman's noose for treason. John Adams was making his appearance before the king as the first ambassador of the United States of America to England and to the British Empire. So those two things, I think, would make you unsettled. First of all, just appearing before a king, and then who this particular king was, and how just a few years before, the relationship, to say the least, had not been a good one. What gave Adam's hope? That he would be received. First of all, there was the character of this king that since the war he had come to know a little bit better. He could hope that this king was a man of integrity and he could hope that this particular king wouldn't hold a grudge, which George III did not. And then there's this also, the fact that the war was over and peace had been declared from this own king's mouth. Do you ever think about what it means to pray? Who you have an audience with? If praying never makes your heart to tremble, I don't know that we are rightly thinking about the God before whom we appear, with whom we have this audience, that he is the great king the king of all kings, the most high, the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. If we don't think about who he is and how formerly we were estranged from him and had, uh, we were at odds with him because of our sin, if, that, if those facts don't make our hearts tremble a little bit as we come into prayer, I don't know that we are thinking about prayer and about God rightly. So what hope do we have to be received? First and foremost, we have this. It's the character of the God before whom we stand. It's the character of the God that we are seeking favor from. It's, um, it's who he has declared himself to be. It's his reputation that gives us hope. And second, there's this that David didn't even see the fulfillment of. We have the word of peace declared from this king's mouth. He has declared that the war is over and we are no longer under his condemnation. 
So this morning, I want us to go back and to draw once more. I I realize that some of you here haven't been with us for the duration of this series. But we're going to go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Six in particular. And we are going to learn from the glory revelation that was made to Moses how we can pray in confidence. God's answer to Moses' prayer, please show me your glory, teaches us that we can pray with confidence before God and teaches us what we can expect from Him. You remember... Moses asked for a sign of God's favor in Exodus 33, verse 18. And he cried out to God, please show me your glory. And in response, God caused all of his goodness to pass before Moses, and he declared to Moses his name. And that's when you come to Exodus 34, the following morning after God says he will do this, Moses climbs up Sinai again, and in the heights of Sinai, God displays his glory and declares his name, and this is what he says in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, I want to remind you of something that I've been saying over and over for the last few weeks. God's answer to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6, this revelation of his glory that leaves Moses bowed down into the dirt, this revelation stands at the headwaters of the revelation of our redemption. So, in other words, every person whom God will redeem down through history sits downstream of this revelation. And God has revealed his character back there so that downstream we can look back upstream to the headwaters to know who our God is. We can learn from what God has declared what to expect of him. And church family, this is, this is huge. It is huge. We must understand this. We don't know from this revelation what conditions he'll create for us. We don't know what situations in the future will be exactly, even in response to our prayers. We have sickness. We have difficulties, uncertainties in life. When we go to God in prayer, this revelation to Moses doesn't say, does not say God will create these conditions for us. But this is, this is the thing. We can know, we can trust what character God will prove. And this should be our prayer. And our very bold and confident prayer. And it just, it hit me really afresh this past week as I was studying. I, I, sitting in my office, I looked out the back window and I was just feeling some certain things going on in my life. And I said, Lord, I don't know how this is going to unfold. I don't know what conditions you will create for me. But I'm asking you to prove your character. 
no matter what. Things get easier or harder. Prove your character. Prove your character to me again. You are the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I know this is who you are because this is what you have said. It's what you have said. I had, as I prayed, no doubt in my mind whatsoever that God would prove his character. That's what you can trust. That, that is a bedrock of certainty. That is something that you can anchor your entire life to. God will prove his character to you. No matter what you're going through. No matter what loneliness you feel. And no matter what insecurity you have. God will prove his character to his people. Always. No matter what conditions no matter what situations we pass through. So we have been looking, beginning last week, on what, at what effect this glory revelation to Moses has on us personally and for our lives. And so beginning last week, we, we said there were four things. Because to catch up those of you who haven't been here, um, this, this passage in Exodus 34 is quoted, is alluded to many, many times throughout the Old Testament. This was, in that era, the supreme revelation from God. The greatest revelation from God of that time, up until the person of Jesus. And they always came back to it. And so I've studied the patterns and the quotes and the allusions and so on of about 200 passages of Scripture. And I've seen these patterns of effects that this revelation had on the people of God. So last week we were looking at the 103rd Psalm, and we realized that this revelation from, from God compels us to praise Him. It compels our worship. How could we withhold our worship from such a great and glorious God? Going forward, we're going to see that this revelation also spurs us on to perseverance even in the most trying times, even in the times of greatest temptation, we're spurred on to persevere in hope and holiness. And then after that, we'll see that we, this, this revelation becomes our proclamation to the world. We, we will declare from one generation to the next, and we will declare to all the world, this is our God. Behold Him and bow. What a great and glorious God we have. Today, we will see that this Revelation, as we see in Psalm 86, turns us to pleading. This was the effect on the Old Testament saints. Over and over again throughout their generations, when the Old Testament people of God prayed, they would keep coming back to what God had declared to Moses, which is now 3,500 years ago. They would come back to it again and again, quoting it and bringing it up to God and presenting their case before him and saying, we expect you to hear us and we expect you to answer because this is who you said you are. This is the kind of God that we serve. We know, we are confident you will answer. But we today can have more confidence than they had. Because while they looked back to the declaration of his character, we also look back to the display of his character in glory upon the cross. 
It was there upon the cross that Jesus took all of our guilt upon himself. For all the trampling of God's glory that we are guilty of, the spurning of God's glory, the falling short of his glory, Jesus paid for that. He paid the debt and the penalty of our treason against God in full. So there is nothing left that is required of us to pay for. So when we go to God, we see the display of his character as he declared it to Moses and also how he showed it in his son ultimately from the cross. We know the character of our king. And from the cross, we hear the declaration of peace from his own mouth. Now, before we get back into Psalm 86, I I, I want to, uh, just to show you quickly how the Old Testament saints throughout their history came back to this glory revelation to use as the basis of their pleading to God. And the first person who did this was naturally Moses himself. It was shortly after they were brought out from Egypt that God first declared his goodness, displayed himself to Moses. And then you remember when the people of Israel finally came to the promised land to receive their inheritance, they rejected it. They said, there's no way that God will deliver this land and these enemies within it into our hand. We can't take this. We can't take this land. And so God, in response to that, threatened, again, to consume the entire nation and start over with Moses. You remember, that's exactly what happened in Exodus 32 after the whole golden calf incident. It's the whole, it's the same thing over and over again. God threatens to consume the nation. Moses intercedes. And, and you remember back in Exodus 32, Moses said, what will the nation say? They will say, you brought those people out of Egypt just to consume them in the wilderness. What kind of God is that? And here in Numbers 14, Moses does the same thing. He says the same thing. He says, what will the nation say about what kind of God we serve? But there's an additional basis or grounding for his pleading with God. Because back then when Moses first interceded, he didn't have the revelation yet, right? In Exodus 32. He he didn't have that declaration from God's own mouth that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It was after that intercession that Moses saw that. So now, as God is threatening to consume the nation again, not only does he say the same thing as he did before, but now he has a new argument to bring up with God. And he says, God, you said, and now he says, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So Moses is the first example. He brings up Exodus to God in numbers. And he says, look, God, this is who you are. This is what you have said. So hear my pleading and forgive this people. And God relented. He did not consume the nation. 
There is no passage of scripture that influenced David's life and his prayers as he expresses them in the Psalms more than Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is hardly surprising. One commentator has said about Exodus 34, he brings this up in Psalm 86, he says, God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is the north star of the Bible and the refrain of the Psalter. And what he means is, is that that revelation back then acted as a guide for the people all through their history, like the North Star has guided people all throughout our history. So this is what it, the influence it had on David. It was a guide to him. He knew what kind of God he served because of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. David would allude to God's glory revelation to Moses in many of the Psalms. Remember what God said. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that pairing of steadfast love and faithfulness comes up in the prayers of David over and over again. Now, in three Psalms in particular, David talks about God's glory revelation at length. Psalms 86, 103, and 145. Last week we were talking about 103, how God's glory revelation compels us to praise him. Now, like Psalm 103, which was our meditation a week ago, the glory revelation of Exodus 34 is the linchpin of Psalm 86. It, you could think of it like the cornerstone of the psalm. Everything David prays is based on Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Everything he asks for is made to fit Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Let me give you a brief overview. This passage divides into three paragraphs. In verses 1 to 7, David asks for those constant needs that we will always be asking for this side of heaven. In verses 8 to 13, David prays that just as one day the Lord will own the world's allegiance, so even now God would own David. And then finally in verses 14 to 17, God, uh, David pleads to God based on a, a specific threat against his life. But each paragraph, each series of requests is grounded ultimately in that glory revelation of Exodus 34. As David appeals especially to God's hesed, that is to God's steadfast love. All right, let's begin at 12.10. Let's begin. You're cool with that, right? I'm cool with that. Incline your ear and answer me. Preserve my life and save me. Be gracious to me and gladden my soul. Some of the prayers that we pray are situational, very specific to what we're going through in our lives. But some prayers we pray are just constant. We always, on this side of heaven, have to pray certain things. You could call them broad brush prayers because they just cover every single area of our lives. That's what these are in the first seven verses. Incline your ear, answer, preserve my life, save me, be gracious, gladden my soul. They're constant prayers. But notice, as each one of these requests flies up to God, David attaches something to it, something that either David is or something that David does. So he says, answer. That flies up to God. 
for I am poor and needy. Preserve, for I am godly. Save, because I trust in you. Be gracious, because I raise my prayer without ceasing to you and to you alone. Now, in verse 7, no, verse, verse, well, verse 7, yeah. David asserts his, his great confidence. Look at, this is a very bold statement. He says, in the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Do you pray like that? Do you pray that confidently? In the day of my trouble, I call because you answer. How does David know this? How does David know with confidence that God will answer him? Ultimately, the prayers that he raises up to God are not grounded on, I am poor and needy. They're not ultimately anchored in, I am godly. They are grounded on verse 5. He says, because I know this. You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. How do we know God will answer our prayers? Because that is the character of our God. I want to ask you a question. What kind of reputation does God have in your thoughts? God has declared his character in the word. There's this revelation. But what do you think of him personally? What kind of reputation does he have in your thoughts? Do you have a caricature drawn of God in your mind? Or do you have in mind the God who actually is? Do you remember Adam and Eve and their sin in the garden and how they fled from God? Why did they flee from God? Why did they hide behind a bunch of trees, ashamed and and, and shaking and shifting blame? Because they had this picture of God drawn in their minds, and it was a caricature. The serpent had planted seeds of doubt in their minds about the goodness of God, and those Seeds of doubt had, had sprouted, and now they were growing wild and taking over all of their thinking. Not only did they have doubt growing wild in their thoughts, but they had never heard the declaration of God being forgiving. I mean, he hadn't told them that yet. He hadn't said, no fear, I am gracious and merciful. I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So they, they had, thinking about God, they had a certain reputation for God in their thoughts, and that's why they ran. What kind of reputation does God have in your thoughts? We always have to fend off projections of God in our minds that are not based on his word. Because our, pro- our projections of God will always be vain imaginations and will always hinder our prayers. We will picture in our minds that God is either all fierce or all fluffy. One of the two. One of those extremes. Forget the projections. What has God said? When God says, I am this kind of God, what has he said? So David is sitting, again, he's sitting downstream 
from the glory revelation. And he's looking back upstream to the headwaters. And he is saying as he pleads with God, I know what kind of God you are. Because you have said you are good. You have said you forgive. You have said that you abound in steadfast love. I know then that you hear and you answer my prayers. Again, forget the projections. Whether they are culturally conjured or self-conjured. Fend them off. The favor of conjured up gods is either hard-earned or automatic. You see, most of the world over, the favor of conjured up gods is something very hard-earned. And that's why in the world religions, the conjured up gods, that's small g, you understand, those gods are graceless. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion on the face of the planet. Every religion says you have to do something to earn the favor of God. You have to follow these steps. You have to submit yourself to the five pillars of Islam, this and that. That's the world's religions. The favor of conjured up gods is hard earned. Now in the postmodern West, though, the small g God is whatever you want her to be. And I'm saying that purposefully. The small g God is whatever you want her to be. Servant of your whims and affirming every single inclination of your heart. So fend off the projections. Whether it's, you know, they're cultural projections or things that you just conjure up in your own spirit. Fend them off and go back to the word. What has God said? Look at what David says next in the next several verses. He says, the true God, the God of the Bible, is a glorious God. Verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. One day David acknowledges in verse 9, all the nations he has made shall come and worship before him and shall glorify his name. And why will they do that? Verse 10, because he is great and he does great. He alone is God. And so in this second section, verse 11 This leads David to make this request. He pleads to the God who owns the nations that he will make David personally to walk in his truth and would unite David's heart to fear the name of the Lord. If there is one God to whom all the nations of the world owe their allegiance, who am I to resist him? And that's why David's praying like he is. All the nations will bring you glory. So who am I to resist? Make me to walk in your truth. Make me to walk in your way. And if there is but one true God, then he must own me. He must own me, all of me. I dare not withhold any part of my being from this God. There is one God over all. He would own me and all of me. And that's why he prays, unite my heart to fear your name. I was talking to a friend recently on the phone about the Christian faith. My friend isn't a Christian. And he still has a lot of questions about Christianity. And I think that he wants to a degree to be a Christian, but he doesn't want to become a Christian 
just because the Christian faith seems to be like the best of all of our projections, the best of the options on the menu. And he doesn't want to become a Christian just out of fear, just because he, he fears you know, God's judgment in the future. And I told him, you're right. Those are bad reasons to become a Christian. Because if you are a Christian, Christ would own you. He will own you. God is not a God to be toyed with. God will not be had on the side. He will not be had on the side. He would own us. So does he? Does he have your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength? Does he have all of you? If all of the world will glorify him, then all of you must glorify him. Now, is that hard? Is that a hard thing? Well, it depends on what kind of God would own you, what God would own you. If in your mind he is the God who, who makes you, you know, sew fig leaves together and run behind trees, ashamed and shifting blame and all of that, then yeah, that's hard. If his favor is hard earned and you have to work all your life long for him to just throw you a bone, that's a hard thing than that that kind of God would own you. And if he's the God who, you know, just winks at everything you do, no matter how evil it might be, affirms every inclination of your heart and says, you were born that way, that's all right. If he's that kind of God, then he doesn't really own you. You actually own him. But the God of the Bible would own us completely. But what kind of God is he? What kind of God? What kind of God has won David's heart? Look at it. Verse 12. After making these requests, unite my heart to fear your name. He says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. That's the kind of God that won David over. He said, I will give you all of me. I want to give you all that I am because I know what kind of God you are. And once again, this series of requests is culminating in him looking back to what kind of God revealed himself back in Exodus. He is the God who abounds in steadfast love. Will you give that kind of God all that you are and all that you have? I will. I will. We'd be crazy not to. I really don't have time to go through too many more passages of Scripture that show you that many times when the people of God pray, they are referring back to what was revealed to Moses. If you want, you can look up Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7, where David prays, remember your steadfast love. Go to Psalm 51, verse 1, where confessing his sin against God with Bathsheba and covering up that sin with the murder of Uriah, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. You could go to Daniel 
who prayed just as the exile was coming to conclusion in Daniel 9. He prays to the, God, to the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Or to several decades down the line to Nehemiah, where the people of God are confessing their sins corporately. They're standing as a nation before God. And once again, they go back in Nehemiah 9.17 and other verses in that chapter to the God who revealed himself to them nearly a thousand years before as the gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. All throughout their history, they kept coming back to, to that passage and saying, look, God, this is what you have said. There's a lot of people out there, I don't know if you've heard this before, maybe, maybe not, who say, you don't need to quote the Bible when you pray. God knows what he said. You don't have to quote him back to him. And that's such an ignorant statement. Because if that is actually the case, that we shouldn't bring up what God has said, then Moses and David and Daniel and Nehemiah and the people of God all throughout their history had prayer all wrong. You want to call out to God with confidence? Go back to what he has said. This is prayer. Lord, you have said. Does that not give you boldness when you go to God? Look at what you have said. You can't go wrong. I know there's going to be many situations where you don't know just how to pray. But if we have the word of God stored up in our hearts, in our memories, to meditate upon and to recall, we will know a lot better how to pray, won't we? Okay, we don't know what conditions that we are right for God to create for us. We want things to be easier, but we don't know that that is God's will. Lessen this burden and so on. We don't know what conditions he will create. But again, we know with all of our hearts what character our God will prove. And that's how the Old Testament saints prayed. They kept coming back to this and saying, Lord, you have said, and they knew that God would answer. In the final paragraph, verses 14 to 17, now David addresses a very specific threat against his life. Insolent men, he says, are banded together to seek his destruction. They're the kind of people who do not set God before them. They set themselves before God. They would destroy David if they could, and they would destroy David's God. And so this threat is very loud in David's life, very loud in his heart. What words are loudest in your heart? The words of your problems or the words of God's promises? There are some people, Christians, if you ask them, how are you doing? They'll tell you always what their problems are doing instead of what God has done and what God is doing. They are all anxiety, all fear, all woe is me, all the time. And I feel for those people because I know what is speaking loudest in the ears of their hearts. It's their problems, and it's not the promises of God. It's kind of like if you say to them, listen, this is who our God is. You give them some encouragement from the word, and they say, I know that is true, but there's this. That's easier said than done, or... It's hard to believe, or you know, this, there's this situation. This is so big, I, I just don't know. They'll talk to you about God's problems. You say, this is God's truth, and they'll say, yes, but this is my problem. But look at what David did. 
He said, God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. He starts with this problem. And then he says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I don't know what the order is in your life, but I'm asking you to go off Psalm 86 and flip it all around, if it needs flipping around. Where the problem is first, not last. Don't give the problem the last word in your heart. You recount the problem. You raise it up to God. And then you say, but I know who you are because you have said so. I know what kind of God I have and I will rest in you. You will hear and you will answer. I don't know what kind of conditions you will create for me, but I know without a doubt the character that you will prove. Not God is good, but this problem is really bad. Rather, this problem is really bad, but my God is really good. No matter what the situation is. Who gets the last word in your heart? Anxieties? Or the living God. As we have said so often, there is a greater word and a greater revelation than Exodus 34. As breathtaking as that revelation was, there is a greater revelation. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 with its declaration of God's mercy and grace, long-suffering and abundance of steadfast love and faithfulness is not... The final answer to the people of God's plea, show us your glory. Jesus is. Jesus himself said, get this, put this, apply this word from Jesus to what I've been saying. Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. John 5, 46. Moses wrote about me. So when Moses wrote down the goodness of God in Exodus 34, ultimately, what is he talking about? Ultimately, who is he talking about? He's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if the Old Testament saints had so much confidence in the character of God that it was dependable and changeless and the God of Moses was their God and what God said back then also stood for them, what kind of confidence should we have? Because we have seen the fulfillment of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us and In him we have seen the glory of God full of grace and truth. What kind of confidence, church family, should you have when you go to him? More confidence even than what they had. One more thing I want to say to you. In Matthew chapter 17, the disciples Peter, James, and John went up the mountain with Jesus. And Jesus was transfigured before them. The cloud of glory descended, and there appeared with Jesus Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, these great, great heroes of the faith. And Peter, James, and John were astonished and frightened, and they bowed their faces to the earth. And you remember Peter spouted off something or other. And then God spoke from the glory cloud. And he said, this is my beloved son, 
hear him. There's Moses and there's Elijah, the law and the prophets. And he is saying to us, the new covenant people of God, hear my son. Church family, hear his word. He is the fulfillment of the glory of God, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature and his character. Hear him. Hear him who announced from the cross, it is finished and there is no more debt to pay. And hear him who said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is our God. We can trust him at all times and pour out our hearts to him, knowing just what he has said. Father, we thank you for your promises, for your word, for who you are. You showed it to Moses. You declared it back then. And then you proved it upon the cross of Calvary in the Son whom you had sent, our Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon himself all of our sin and paid all of our debt that we might be ransomed, that we might be free to belong to you forever. You are our God. God, prove your character to my church family. There are so many different problems and burdens that are so heavy on my church family. Some might not be feeling a great burden right now, but I know others are. Prove your character to them. Whether their situation changes or not, whether the the burden lessens or it actually feels heavier, show yourself faithful. God who is gracious and merciful, long-suffering and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to him, to her, to all of us in Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.